This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. All right, all right, all right. Welcome to Erased. I am your co-host, Colette Bauer-Zinn, and we have an Erased first this week, and that is that Lisa Johnson is traveling while we're recording, and so I am flying solo. Her positivity will definitely be missed. We're sorry she's going to miss this, because we have another first on this episode of the podcast, which we'll get to in a second, and it's going to add another reel to the real reel. In our last episode, we had a long overdue conversation with recent black private school alums, Jamie and Jay. First, let's hear from Jamie. A lot of times, I don't know about Jay, but at my private school, most of the administrators were white. So they never really understood what it felt like to be alienated in a classroom and to feel like you're the other. And so it's really hard to convey you know, okay, maybe it didn't seem like much, but emotionally and historically with the African-American community, that little microaggression means a lot. Now we hear from Jay. I remember in the last two English classes I had, like in junior and senior year, I was the only black student and the teachers thought it'd be a good idea to, instead of having like the white students say it, just like specifically calling me like every time to read every time. No. Wait a minute. Wait no. a minute. Wait a minute. No. I want to make sure I'm not misunderstanding. Where you're reading this in class and every time the teacher's like, Jay, and he's got to be like, N-word. Is that what you were saying? Yeah. I, I understood that she didn't oh mean God. it to be rude or to like be demeaning. Oh my I, God. I confronted her about it though. And I, I, I wasn't personally like moved by it. I just was like, I don't want to do this. Like, do I have to do this? And she's like, oh, no, of course not. Like, I'm sorry that I made you feel this way. Both also shared that it was the invaluable support they received from their families, specifically their moms, that helped them face the tougher moments on the way to graduation. So today we are really excited to talk to their moms, Charlene and Mai, to hear their insights about supporting their own students of color as they navigated their private school experiences. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is not all. Also joining this conversation is the head of school at Turning Point School in Los Angeles, Laura Konensberg. She's a white head of school, and she enthusiastically agreed to join in this conversation to learn from Charlene and Mai more about black students' experiences in predominantly white learning institutions and how these schools might better serve their emotional and learning needs. Again, a note to listeners, in today's episode, we're again only using our mom's first names and not naming the schools that their children attended out of respect for their privacy. Additionally, although they've generously agreed to come and speak to their specific experiences, what we'll discuss today, including those experiences, is what we hear every day from parents and professionals in schools all over this country, and therefore not unique when it comes to the experience of children in color in private schools. So let's jump into some introductions. Joining us today is Charlene, Jamie's mama. She is a 13-year Los Angeles area private school board member, parent association and DEI chair, Black Student Union Parent Association chair, and president of JAD Entertainment Group Management and a writer. Also joining us today is my 
and that's Jay's mama. Maya is an active supporter of a variety of charitable organizations as a board member, volunteer, and fundraiser. Most recently, Maya's focused on organizations benefiting children and political causes. She's a trustee at a local K-6 private school, a founding member of FOCUS, an affiliate group of Children's Hospital LA, and the Harry S. Huggins Memorial Scholarship Fund at the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven, where she oversees the annual College Scholarship Awards selection. Before we get to introducing Laura, I want to jump in and ask the two of you a quick question. Both of the schools that your children attended say that 55% of the students self-identify as students of color. Was that your lived experience as a parent in those schools, that you were seeing one out of two students of color? I would say for my daughter in her school, not one out of two, but maybe one out of three, maybe one out of four. Okay. Mai, what was your lived experience on the ground? People may say that somewhere along the lines, um, <laughs> there's a person of color in their ancestry. Um, so I don't know those facts, but from what my eyes could tell, that's not true. Okay. As promised, last but not least, one more introduction. Joining us today is Laura, head of school at Turning Point School here in Los Angeles. Turning Point's mission is to be an independent school that provides harmony between the structure of a rigorous academic program and the freedom that guides each child through the many academic, emotional, creative, physical, social, and ethical turning points the primary, elementary, and middle school years present. We succeed when our students become responsible, well-balanced adults who are confident, honest, knowledgeable, community-focused, global-oriented, joyful, and well-prepared to face a challenging and changing world. Laura, before we jump in, can you tell me more about the HEADS group that you joined and are doing some really neat work with that we've discussed? Sure, um, thanks for having me. Thanks for allowing me to, to listen and, and participate today. I'm honored to be here. Um, in the last year, when a lot of s schools began mobilizing after the murder of George Floyd, one that, uh, some white heads of school throughout California did was came together to form a white anti-racist leadership affinity group, which was only for heads of school, which we participate in maybe every six weeks to do some of this work as white heads around anti-racism, sharing resources, experiences. We have a book group, which I co-facilitate. And so that's been going pretty strong for the past year and is continuing with people who I think are very grateful to have that space yeah. to learn from each other. That's awesome. Before we jump into the conversation conversation, we got to start with what we always do. We ask all of our guests, and I'm going to start with you, Charlene, for a quick response to when was the last time you felt erased, diminished, not heard, or seen? The last time I felt erased, diminished, not seen was at a board meeting. You know, it's a difficult time right now. And, and you know, I don't think everybody understands or no, maybe not doesn't understand or know how to move forward. So to get to that point, I think we have to take a few steps backwards to, to, to get there. So, you know, I, I felt erased at that point. I felt like, a, what have I been doing all this time? I hear you. My, when was the last time you felt erased? 
I'd like to say I never feel erased, like never, ever, ever. But I think it probably happened so much <laughs> that I just, I've learned to kind of move past it very quickly. Probably the last time was last week in trying to engage a teacher on something. I had asked phone or a Zoom call and he sent a, uh, information back when I had asked for a call. And so I said, okay, great, thanks for the information. Yes, we should definitely have a call. And so that made, <laughs> that made me feel unerased very quickly. And then I think there's something that um, black people in private school and maybe people of color, but I will speak as a black woman. But first you have to not step on toes and then you have to make them see, okay, I'm kind of able to speak the language you're speaking. I'm able to understand what you're saying in terms of education, speak about education, maybe at your level. Then you have to take it up one notch and say, on oh, my child, I am the expert. You cannot out-expert me. And then with language, tone, conversation, every little bit of intelligence you have, so that then they say, oh, okay, she really knows what's happening. And now I'm gonna address her and behave in a way that lets her know that I, I see her. And it's exhausting. And you have to do all that while navigating, trying not to appear to be a threat. And it's constant. But unless you know how it works, I don't know how many kids have a parent, especially when there's social economic issues, or maybe they haven't gone to private school themselves, or maybe it's the first kid through a private school system. You just get shortchanged, period, end of conversation. There is no way to navigate it without understanding it. And there's no one in place at a majority of the schools to help that happen, except for other parents. Fascinating. Laura, when was the last time you felt erased, diminished, not heard or seen? You know, I've been thinking about this a lot as I come into middle age as a woman and the ways in which I think we be begin to become more invisible and are more and more sort of disregarded or, or almost looked past. And that's been an interesting transition for me as I've across the line of being 50 years old. And you know, also though, May, what you were saying about proving your expertise before being seen and feeling, that's just a, that feels like a constant having to say, like, I, I know what I'm talking about. I am an expert before people take me seriously. And that definitely resonated. Okay, let's jump in. So how did you choose the schools that you sent Jamie and Jay to? Charlene, let's start with you. You know, I wanted a school. It was important to have brown faces. And at the time that I visited private schools, and I know I definitely wanted a private school or a religious school. So um, in, in looking at, at my daughter's school, out of all of them, it was the only one that I saw more brown faces mm -hmm. for her. Mm -hmm. And I thought, coming from a private school, sector myself and having going to school, I know how I felt. And so I wanted her to have a little bit more. And the reason I chose our school was because I thought it was a very conducive environment for my little girl. My, how'd you choose the schools that you sent Jay to? Both my husband and myself moved from the East Coast to Los Angeles, so we had no sense of the the schools here. Um, I knew it probably wouldn't be a public school. 
And when I looked at the schools in the area, um, the elementary school where he ended up going was the school that most of my African-American friends said if they could get in, that would be the school where they would go, (laughs) or they were at the school and they were happy with it. And I looked at a lot of schools, um, and it was the only one where I remember clearly seeing there's diversity at a lot of schools, but I have two boys, and I just kept seeing black girls. (laughs) Like, where are the boys? Where are they hiding? Mm -hmm. Um, But at the time, I just thought, I don't want him to be the only one in his class, a class ahead of him and a class behind him. Like that just feels terrible. How would you both characterize your overall experience? So if you're talking to friends and and you're characterizing your overall private school experience being mothers of black students, how would you characterize that? You know, I get asked the question all the time, if I had it to do over again, would I do it again? And I definitely would. Because I think for her, it was an experience from early kindergarten through high school. So she had a group of friends that she's been with for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And she's had some great experiences, for sure. But there have been some challenges. And, you know, we have to work through that. We have to work through it in our independent schools. We have to work through it, you know, in our day-to-day lives, business, etc. But if I had it to do all over again, yes, I I would do the same thing. My, I believe that I would definitely with the elementary school, 100%. And, and with the high school, I'm pretty sure it was the right school for him, but I think the school has a lot of growth to do when it comes to um, race and understanding how you include students and make them feel welcome, seen, included, nurtured, cared for. It. I have a second son. And if you add any bit of anything on top of being a black boy, then, you know, some of the schools just do not work. So I, I think that with my second son, I probably will do it differently. And as a parent of black boys, I just start to feel like chicken little all the time. Like, <laughs> right. Who's going to help with this? This is not right. Yeah. Yeah. My kids are good, but what about the kids after? It's like, are they going to have this as their curriculum? Are they going to be asked to do these things? Are they going to be, you know, and where does it end? Like at some point. So on that note, let's talk really quickly about Jay's soundbite. How do you feel about that? Were you aware when that went down? I I think I remember, but there were so many different times that it's just, wow. um, it's one of those things, you know, when, when you're going through something and, and I'm just trying to keep my son healthy and happy and just trying to keep things at bay. And in, in the midst of it, you know, I just didn't have a second to look at things that were egregious to me or in mm-hmm. my opinion, I mm-hmm. would say, but you know, you're you're trying to navigate it and that's one of the unfortunate aspects of being a a parent of color in private schools is that like you said these things happen so often in the form of microaggressions all the way to just direct aggressions and we are left evaluating which battles to pick because if we were to go in on everyone then we would be visiting daily and there's also the idea of being the angry black woman like you're always talking about you know this isn't right, and that's not Correct. right. How could you have this? How da, 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 da. You just want to parent and relax and just not put the whole thing on your back and carry it down the road. And sometimes, at least for me, it is not just about my child. 
It's about everybody else that comes behind me and people who don't have the access and the understanding. They don't serve on boards. They don't see it from the inside. It's just a lot. It's a burden. It's a huge burden. And when we were talking to Caitlin Flanagan, she was talking to us about how that the young, white, mostly progressive educators in our schools are wanting to be allies, but we, Black parents, sometimes scare them and that we need to keep that in mind. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I'm done with that route. Now, I do need to be polite and respectful and communicate clearly, but I am no longer interested in worrying about how you receive what I need to say and do to advocate for my child and the other children of color. Charlene. Let me ask you a question. Was there an incident, an episode that still resonates with you as the toughest moment in navigating Jamie's time in her private school? Or was it consistent challenges that were ongoing? You know, I have to say it's consistent challenges and it's it's ongoing. And I think my said it right. If you have a child of color in a private institution as a mom, it's a very difficult job. So when they see us walking in, I think I heard Jamie say, everybody at school knows my mom, right? Because we're constantly advocating for our kids from the smallest microaggressions to the largest aggressions, right? Yes. So it's continuous. There wasn't one incident, there were many incidences. And then there's part of what Mai was saying is that like, those moms like yourself, my, myself, who understand education and have had private school experiences, then we can come at it from a place of knowing. And that, in essence, is a privilege to be able to advocate for our children and how. But there is a huge number of folks of color where their child attending is their first exposure to private school, and they don't know the who's, what's, where's, why's, and how's of navigating that. Let's talk about the Black App movement for a moment. Did you, either of you, read your child's school's account? I did, yes. Mai, did you? I didn't, but I sat in on a meeting, and Jay was the chair of the Black students at the time. Mm -hmm. And we were driving, and it was alum students. It was current students. So for probably two hours, I heard what they had to say. I did not go back and read it because it's... None of it would have been a surprise. None of it would have been. Was it anything. accurate? My, and then Charlene, it, was the information that was shared either via Blackout Movement or what you were hearing in an actual meeting, My, was the information accurate? It was accurate to my knowledge. Yes, absolutely. I read it all. It was accurate. And, and it was disheartening, you know? Amen. But I think it was healing in a way because it gave these kids, even alum kids, an opportunity to be vocal to a mass audience, right? Because yeah. sometimes just talking about it is so healing. So it was accurate. It was great. It was painful. It was growth. It was all those things. How did your schools respond? Ooh, this is another moment where I wish we were live streaming so people could see the faces <laughs> before the responses. How did your schools respond? I think my son's school did their best to respond. They have a DEI person. They really tried to understand what was happening and listen and move. But no matter what the school and administration is doing, moving the entire community mm-hmm. in one direction is not like moving a little sailboat. Right? right. It's like a tanker. It's a barge. It takes like, depending on how 
old they are and how institutionalized some of the things are. It, it just takes a while. And But what I'm curious about, and this, like, sometimes the schools, and I see it at all types of different institutions, but the, the defensive stance, that's what I find difficult to navigate. We will give you that chance to ask Laura about that in just a second. Charlene, how'd your school respond? Our school now, for the first time, hired a DEI director. I, I think they saw a, a huge need mm -hmm. and tried to fill it as quickly, carefully, and responsibly as possible. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of work to be done because we've never, at, at my daughter's school, we've never had a DEI coordinator. Mm -hmm. You know, we've had board members that have been very proactive at BSU, parent association activities and, and you know, meetings with amongst themselves, but that's really it. So I, I think the good for us to come out of this is the new DEI director, which was absolutely necessary. And did your school respond directly to the Black at, at all? Not that I know of. Okay. Laura, thank you for being so patient as we started the conversation. As Blackout was gaining momentum, can you tell me about the climate at your school and in the independent school world since? Sure, so at Turning Point, we did not have a Blackout account. And I hope that it's because we've tried to take up these issues over the last several years. You know, these issues should have been taken up decades ago, but we did get sort of a running start and had some experience talking about courageous conversations and had focused on race over the last year or two and did have a chance to speak with parents of color, but black parents in particular, a couple of years ago in a facilitated conversation about their experiences at the school. This is my fifth year at Turning Point. That must have been in my second or maybe early in my third year. And we heard those parents, heard about their experiences. Some of them, Turning Point is a preschool through grade eight school, so some of them in middle school parents whose children had been there for a long time and had a lot to what say. What were some of the things that stuck with you before you go on? What were some of the things that stood out? Um, feelings about discipline, the ways in which mm. um, black children, in this case, she had, this parents had a black son, felt that he was singled out or disciplined more harshly. Mm. That's a whole episode in, in and of itself, yes. This family felt that their son had been singled out more, seen, as, as we hear that happens and see that that happens to lots of black boys, seen as older. And the data supports. As, yeah. Right, of course. So that feedback from that parent and a few others helped us to create more of a restorative process so that you know we get even better at what we call peeling the onion, mm -hmm. trying to understand what's going on for a child and, and how perhaps their identity and whether they're feeling seen or, or not seen may have something to do with what they're trying to tell us. And also I had been talking to white families, exhorting them to come to our parent education. Often it was sort of the chorus of families who are already interested in these issues, mm -hmm. families of color. So saying to white families, this is on you, this is on us as white members of this community. It's up to us to educate ourselves. It's up to us to be part of the solution and not leave this to families of color because it's not, it shouldn't be their responsibility to teach us all the time. It should be our responsibility to learn and grow and be uncomfortable and create a more inclusive community for all of our community members. So that has been my stance and that 
I hope, has been helping us to have these more difficult conversations. Can you tell us a little bit about the makeup of your school's student population in terms of diversity? I think we're at 47% of families who identify as non-white. So let's talk about that for a second, (laughs) because I brought it up earlier. My touched on it. I know, yeah. This self-identifying piece that, that happens at the outset of the admissions process most of the time, people are checking boxes as they are applying to admissions, and then these are the numbers that come out on the other end, self-identifying. I want to know as a head of school, do you see any alternatives to self-reporting that might better accurately reflect the racial diversity in our private schools? That's a really good question. I mean, I certainly don't want to be in a position where I'm making assumptions based on right. how somebody presents when they come to the school, Amen. right? So I will say, though, that you know when families of color come to the school and walk the campus, which of course they didn't get to do this year, but um, they do report back that they count, you know, which is a pretty, I think, a fairly common practice. They want to see how many when they look around, what do the class compositions look like? How many kids of color, you know, will their child be? I know Mai was talking about not wanting her son to be the only black boy in a grade level. And I think, you know, we do have families of color who do reach out to other families of color to say, we've had a good experience here. Again, we're not, it's not perfect, and but I try to be honest and authentic about where the school needs to go. Laura, what but you I, just said about question, yeah. um, counting as you're walking through and not wanting to be the only one, if I recall correctly, you were sharing a story with me about a decision that you had to make for class placement. I think the story you're referring to is in one of our grade levels, we have a lot of black boys and some of the parents were saying that it would be a wonderful opportunity if we allowed them to be in one class together. It was like eight, eight or nine mm-hmm. in a section, just so that when they looked around, they didn't feel like they were in the minority of that group mm-hmm. and they would truly feel- Power in numbers. Power in numbers, mm-hmm. yeah. And so we went ahead and did it. And those kids had, a, I think, a very positive experience, really thrived, felt that power that they had in community with one another. But some of the white parents didn't understand, you know, why we had made that choice. And, you know, one in particular did end up leaving the school because she felt that we were segregating children by race. So it was a controversial decision, but I think we had laid enough groundwork so that many parents understood and respected the decision. And some of them did want to talk about it, but then came away feeling like they understood why that was important. And as a result, you know, we continued to have the black children together, right? Not to sprinkle them throughout different classes Mm -hmm. as sometimes Mm -hmm. schools used to do. Not to say, okay, we have a black student in this section, so we can check that box, right? right? And we have a black child in this other section of that grade and we can check that box, but to make sure that there's a the power in numbers that you were talking about. And if you feel the need to leave a school that's that's focusing on equity, goodbye. I I hope you find what you need elsewhere. Ma, you had a question for Laura before. About defensiveness? It's not really defensiveness. It's more like um, circling the wagons, basically. I think sometimes it's hard to hear what needs to be discussed. 
And, and like you said, I think you do end up preaching to the converted or, you know, in, in any group events that you have for people to hear about it. And I think what ends up happening for both those on, on the inside of the wagons and those people who are outside saying they don't, they don't need to know anymore, I think there is this idea that permeates private schools that it is an altruistic act to have students of color on campuses. Mm-hmm. We are giving them financial aid. We are giving them a piece of the American dream. We are educating them. We are whatever it is, right? And that becomes the marinade that everybody marinates in. Everybody believes that, black, white, whomever. When really the schools are benefiting having black students on campus. Say it again, Ma. Say it again. Absolutely. The students are benefiting from having diversity on campus. They are better prepared when they go to college where they may or may not have a person of some other race or ethnicity or religion on their campus. And when they go into the workforce, hopefully they will have to either deal with, even if they stay in an entitled privileged position, you still at some point are going to have to figure out how to have conversation with people outside of your race. So I, I think that that is a, a, a shift that needs to happen and a, and a pivoting that the schools need to do because you need us, parents, teachers, faculty, administration, mm-hmm. school itself. You need us. I couldn't agree more. And I think the easy shorthand answer is a kind of you know white fragility, right? That, that we're changing cultures and we can change systems and put in hiring practices and new systems and thoughtfulness around discipline and other kinds of systems in place. But I think the cultures of schools have to change, right? And when you think about that kind of defensiveness or resistance to change or a fear of loss of whatever privilege or power or, or just the discomfort around, I want to think of myself as a good person. There's so many elements of kind of white culture or white supremacy culture in independent schools. How could there not be? They were created that way to be white establishment schools and the fear of conflict also, right? To have to have those conversations to open yourself up to listening and being wrong and making mistakes and being clumsy. And I think you have to practice removing those and moving those aside. Educators are sometimes conflict avoidant. They want to do what's best for children. And I think when you give them tools to be able to have honest dialogues create opportunities for empathy, help them understand that these tools and shifts in culture do benefit everybody at the school, right? And that it's not just, as you said, an altruistic or charitable um, kind of endeavor, then schools can move. Having said that, as schools are trying to move, some schools, they're being met with the woke at type movements where that's on the other side of the spectrum where people are saying, diversity, equity, and inclusion is being forced down the throats of their students, that they are losing out for Mm -hmm. the focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion and the shifts that these schools are trying to make. How do you as a head Mm -hmm. of school respond to that point of view? If you're of the mind of supporting all children, if you believe that it's important to support all children and you believe it's important to have racial equity, which most parents will agree with, then you have to support these opportunities and these initiatives for more racial literacy in the curriculum, for instance, or other initiatives, affinity groups, or whatever it is that the schools are pursuing. And I think there's a false dichotomy between the idea that, you know, academic rigor has to be sacrificed 
for racial literacy or anti-racist curricula yes. and practices. I just think that that is a straw man argument. And as you said, my all children need these tools and knowledge to navigate this complex world. And in fact, sometimes I, I'm reminded by black families like, hey, you know what? I work for this investment bank and we're finding our research says that because we have not engaged a more diverse workforce in our field, we've lost out on these opportunities. We all benefit from having a more, not just diverse school, but also a more inclusive and equitable school. I think even this idea of a sense of belonging, which is of course so important, like what is it that we want kids to belong to, right? And I think even unpacking that together is so important. Belonging to a school where students have to give up part of who they are to fit in isn't a sense of belonging, right? So how do you create a culture where everybody gets to belong? It's a different kind of culture than how our schools have traditionally been constructed. And you named it, it's in the talking together, exploring together. You need to bring the different voices in the community together to give them the opportunity to provide the feedback. Moms, I wanna talk to you again for a second. Did you have a specific plan for supporting your child in a predominantly white private school? My plan <laughs> when he was in preschool was to tell him about the richness of his heritage and tell him that black was beautiful and black is, you know, just amazing, wonderful. And I was mm -hmm. over the top with it to mm -hmm. the point where in preschool, all of his art started coming back just straight black posters, just black, nothing, no art, just black. <laughs> And and then as he got older, I was just trying to protect. I mean, we had discussions and my husband and I, you know, you, you can't raise a black boy without having all kinds of discussions. And so it was a constant, but in terms of how he could navigate it, we just didn't know because we weren't the student ourselves. Right? Mm -hmm. You'd almost have to be a parent teacher in the school itself to help your child navigate it unless there is some equivalent person that really is tasked with doing that at the school. Charlene? You know, I, I didn't have a specific plan, but what I did see was not enough brown faces for my daughter. There were times where she was the only little brown girl in class, right? And so there were times that I saw her because, you know, we could do something at school where parents can come in and serve lunch for the kids, which is a great thing. So a lot of times I saw her by herself. So for me, I thought as a parent, okay, what can I do to help my daughter feel good about who she is? Because I've always told her, you know, as we all do our children, you're beautiful. You have beautiful skin. Your skin is different. For girls, a big thing. Your hair is different. Your hair is you know, mm -hmm. kids at school want to touch your hair because it feels different. I think what really pushed me one day, a kid said that her hair looked like Medusa, like she got her hair braided. <laughs> so he's like, oh, my God, you have all these worms coming out of your hair. What happened to your hair? So it was devastating for her, right? Because she goes to school thinking it's beautiful. So I thought, you know what? As, Tell as him mom, to be what careful with Medusa. Don't play. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> That's a compliment to me. <laughs> yeah, I love it. So I look for things outside of school mm -hmm. to help her 
bridge that gap and make her feel good about who she is and proud of what she is and she could have more friends that look like her. So I joined Jack and Jill. Can you explain what Jack and Jill is for our listeners? Because we, we all know it, but it's likely that a lot of our listeners do not. Yeah, Jack and Jill of America is a membership organization of mothers with children between the ages of two to 19. The organization is dedicated to nurturing future African-American leaders. We strengthen our children through leadership, development, philanthropic services, and civic duty. And Mm -hmm. for my daughter, it was a great opportunity for her to see other kids in private school because like you said, there are sprinkles of brown kids in all these private schools, depending on where you live, right? So it was an opportunity for me to put her in touch with kids or face-to-face with kids in group activities that look like her, that went to private schools like her, that maybe share some of the same experiences. And now there's private school village to do that so that you don't have to pay heaps of money and do heaps of time working with other organizations outside of school. We've, we talked to some parents before and they were talking about the burden of both the co-curricular piece where we're trying to teach our kids about who they are and how to navigate the world that way. And also like the co-social piece where you're saying the Jack and Jill's et cetera of the world where you're spending time and money to connect and get for you yourself and your children what they aren't getting in these schools. Both of you, what did you learn from watching your child's experience that you wish you would have known? or would like to tell other parents? It would have to be a really long conversation. There's not like five hot topics that I would (laughs) tell every black parent entering a private school. One of the things I think that stood out for me, and I knew it was gonna happen and I was prepared for it, but just this kind of unspoken thing about college where the kids are being told by peers, you're lucky, you're right. black or mm-hmm. you're whatever. It's just so easy. It'll be easier for you. People said that about getting into the elementary school too. It's a really difficult school to get into. And they're like, oh, you're lucky because you guys are black and you'll get in. I go, if that was the case, these schools would be all black. Correct. Unless Don't diminish my achievements. Stop it. <laughs> just stop it's it. It's not the makeup. It's not how it's going to happen. There won't be an all black Ivy little three USC or wherever else everybody want NYU, wherever they want to go. That is not how it's structured in this country. So I think he kind of felt some of that. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Charlene, did you have something? I think the experience is so different, right? For for my and her boys and for me with girls, just the experience of the kids, depending on if you've come from private school, if you understand how to navigate that, just teaching someone who's not familiar with this format, it's just, it's a huge step. So it, it, it really varies. I, I will um, say from knowing both of you po- personally and professionally, um, one of the things we've talked about before that you both have done impeccably is show up and support. So you guys have volunteered lots of time in lots of roles, board membership, being parents, chairing diversity, equity, and inclusion committees, affinity groups at your schools. I'm not saying everyone has the time or resources to do that, but it is really important to show up, to volunteer, to garner relationships when possible, yes? A million percent. You know, I I think for me, you're gonna know me. My kid is there, you're gonna know me, you're gonna see me. 
I'm going to know you on a first name basis. You know, that that's where my passion comes out. But I'm also going to advocate for families, right, that haven't come from private school like myself. It could be intimidating for a lot of families, right? Mm-hmm. So you just have this whole group of us that are at this school with no tools in place. So the only way I think we could help each other and navigate this is to reach out and help each other. And that's affinity space. That's the importance of affinity space too, both student and familial. It's critical. Laura, do you advise formally, informally, both your teachers on how to specifically support students of color? We've aired and had conversations about, you know, real things that get said, real incidents that happen on campus which creates more empathy for faculty, more opportunities for them to expand their understanding, to have the kind of conversations that they need to have with each other, with parents. We've changed the curriculum. We've incorporated awareness and developing your expertise and a growth mindset around issues around equity and inclusion in our faculty evaluations. And so we're trying to think about anti-racism looking it through that lens and all the different workings of a school Mm -hmm. community are implemented and considered. So we are training faculty and and being clear about expectations and supporting them as they make these changes. Moms, how does that sound to you? How would you advise teachers to best support students of color? I, I started my kind of main career at Sony Music at Columbia Records. When I left, I was a vice president of marketing. And I remember when I was working, and this is the 90s, there was an ad by a company saying everywhere that this company had influence. So in the United States, it had, you know, a cowboy, it had somebody on the East Coast, it had some surfers in California, it had some indigenous people, maybe in Canada, Central and South America, it had Europe, it had Italians, and it had everybody in traditional garb and in Asia, everyone in traditional garb, Africa, animals. Kangaroos, lions, gorillas, right? So I go, whoa, what the heck? And the only thing that it said to me was that at nowhere in that checkoff list was there a black person. Not nowhere in it. No black person would let monkeys and zebras and animals representation of a continent when everybody else has a human. So I would say that same thing holds true in schools. I have seen so many things in curricula, and I'll ask the question when I see something wrong and say, whatever department, hey, like, this is really kind of odd. Like, is this, how, is this, is this what's meant? And they're like, oh my gosh, I didn't even see it that way. And I go, are there any black people in this department? Nope. Amen. That's why representation matters. In addition to doing training, We need to have representation because as those conversations are happening, there need to be people who've had that lived experience to be able to evaluate what's being discussed, what's being implemented on the ground. Charlene. I I feel on this one, this is a big one for me, right? So there's no reason that a black child should go to a private institution and graduate and not have a black teacher, not a coach, a black teacher academic teacher master teacher associates are fantastic and master teachers count too because that learning that learning curve i should say for other teachers 
to actually have to work with someone of color, there's a lot that's, that's learned there. There's a lot to be taught. So I think administrators across the country in independent schools, there's no way you can tell me that you cannot find a qualified teacher of color to teach big subjects, AP history, AP science, English, math. You can't tell me they don't exist. So go out and find those teachers, make it representative of what you want your student body to look like. And that's a piece of private school access. It is to help our schools, private schools in the Los Angeles area, find those educators of color to populate their institutions. You're absolutely right. Laura, did you want to respond to any of that before we get to our last question? Just that you're right, that those things are important. We need to do better at representing the students that we have in our communities or want to attract in our communities, continually improving, of asking questions, of asking for feedback, and partnering with parents without putting the burden on asking parents of color, for instance, or people of color to always educate the schools, you know, as, as Jay was asked to do with his, put in a position of having to do with his English teacher. I hear that and agree. All right, moms. Final question, million dollar question that people are asking themselves as they're applying to and navigating these schools. Is it worth it? It it is worth it. I think you have to have a community. And by community, I don't just mean the other black parents. I mean, white parents, Asian parents, LGBTQ, everybody, you have to build community with each Mm -hmm. other. It's the only way to make it through. Weave yourself into the fabric of the community. And I think for the schools, it's important to allow people who may be single parents, who may not have the time, the energy, the resources to really just figure it all out, to pull them in. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the community itself, as a whole to pull people in, or else it's just not healthy for your kids. But I would say probably public school isn't either. So here we are. Charlene, is it worth it? A hundred percent. It's worth it. It's worth it. But I'm going to say not only does your kid have a responsibility to learn in the school, you as a parent have a responsibility to help navigate your kid to to find a community, as Mai said, for, for yourself and for your family to put your child in a position to succeed. And you're right. I think it happens at all schools, public schools, private schools, religious schools. We have to be our own advocates. A huge thanks again to our guests, Charlene, Mai, and Laura. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your time and invaluable insight. Thank you to our Erase listeners. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode. Remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. Learn more at Erased with a C, erasedpodcast.com, or on Instagram or Facebook at Erased Podcast. And as always, please subscribe. I'm your co-host, Colette Bowers-Zinn. Looking forward to our next episode when Lisa's back in the building. Thanks for downloading and listening. See you in two weeks. Thank you.